0: Hello, I'm Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre. Before we start the podcast, just wanted to say how liberating this technology has proved to be for a think tank like ours. We, it's like a continual conversation with smart people. If you want to support this, you can do so by becoming a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre for just ten dollars a month, or you can make a tax deductible donation. Just go to www.menziesrc.org, and now on with the podcast. We're not here just to win an election, we are here to win something for our country. Welcome to the MRC podcast brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. I think I'm writing saying that today's guest is the first published novelist we've had on the the programme, although I suspect we've had a number of unpublished novelists on. Her latest book was The Motion of the Body Through Space. It was described by The Guardian as entertainingly problematic, which I think is probably the best endorsement a guest has had since she won the Orange Prize with uh, We Have to Talk About Kevin in 2013. Lionel Shriver, welcome to the MRC podcast.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: You might be aware that in the recent COVID 19 lockdown in New Zealand, Jacinta Ardern discre- declared that uh, online sales of novels was an, a non essential industry, uh, although the distribution of non fiction was apparently okay. Do you agree with her?
1: Well, I can't afford to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> no. It would be terribly self destructive to agree with that. Um, although, you know, in general, yes. I think one of the nice things about novels is that they are inessential. I mean, they're a luxury good. So, strictly speaking, she's right. But uh, that's one of the things that's great about them. They're completely unnecessary.
0: Well, at a time like this, I would have thought it's just the kind of reading we want, really. I mean, you read the world of nonfiction. is pretty grim at the moment, isn't it, if you follow the news?
1: Well, the world of nonfiction is threatening my profession. Everything's gone so weird that I feel as if I'm trapped in somebody's bad book.
0: I, I don't even recall we we met and um, over dinner in 2014 at the Perth Writers Festival when our our mutual publisher Harper Collins took us out for dinner. So I got a bit of a bit bit of a rough ride at that um, Writers Festival as you do if you're on the centre right. But I, I I detected you you got a bit of an easier ride, and I thought maybe. It's because you're a novelist and you can put your thoughts in in the head of a one of the protagonists in the book and get away with it.
1: I'm afraid that uh, it wasn't me, it was my imaginary friend, get-out-of-jail-free card doesn't work as well as it used to. Um, in fact, uh, we're, we're entering such a literal period, which is quite distinct from literary, that uh, anything you put in a novel regardless of what characters is speaking the thought is assumed to be the thinking of the writer. So all fiction is now being read as effectively as nonfiction and that's despite the fact that uh, especially an issues-based novel is likely to have dialogue which voices uh, completely contradictory opinions. But uh, it's now a little dangerous to express any non uh, orthodox opinion or statement even in novels even through the voices of your characters so i'm afraid the the world of of oppression has visited my profession
0: it's extraordinary but i, mean, I, I when i set up for this podcast this morning, I had to prop up my microphone on, on three books, and, and by coincidence, I noticed the one at the top was Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses, and at that time, I mean, you'd remember that, we thought it was just, just terrible that a novelist should be persecuted for what he'd written, and in that case, by Islamicists, but now every novelist is, is vulnerable.
1: Yes, indeed, and they may not be getting death threats per se, but uh, cancel culture threatens you with a certain kind of death. And that is, it, um, if you have been targeted, the ambition is to muzzle you and to make it impossible for you to publish um, and to have a, a platform on the web or uh, be on TV or um, write uh, columns or newspaper or articles. You can be murdered in, in every way but uh, the, the literal... Sort of murder, and if you care about your work, uh, which most of us do, that is a very effective punishment. I mean, it's this is canny stuff. That's the that's the worst thing you can do with uh, to a writer is to not allow them to publish their work, not allow them to have an audience. Because I don't know about you, but I, I write to be read. I mean that it's not just something that I do to amuse myself. It does. I do amuse myself, (laughs) (laughs) which I think you can tell from the books. With no audiences, I mean, I would just wither up.
0: I mean, I suppose one of the few good things about the sort of increasingly authoritarian. Um, progressive left um, is is that they do give you plenty of material for comedy, don't they? I mean, there's a lovely scene in in the book in in which Remington Alabaster, the one of the chief protagonists, faces this kangaroo court because he's alleged to have um, assaulted his black boss, but of course it turns out to be total nonsense. There's lots of humour in it, isn't there?
1: Oh yeah, I love I mean, I love writing that scene. I got. I, I got the idea for that scene from uh, what at the time was uh, a quite a, a notorious uh, iPhone tape. Uh, a young woman in Canada had uh, been hauled before an academic tribunal at her university because she had dared to show a Jordan Peterson video to her class and um Someone recorded her that this was you know, this was somehow abuse, right? And the and the recording was extraordinary. It was uh, it was She she was the one who recorded the encounter These academics were You know, they were beyond parody. They they were self parodying in a way that was Positively improbable so that they did nothing but talk and jargon and using all these um classic The, the classic of uh, left-wing lexicon um, I mean if anything in this the scene I created I toned it down in comparison and they were Incredibly cruel and they they reduced her to tears uh, but she had had the wit beforehand to turn on the recording function on her smartphone and therefore put it out on the web and and of co- it 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 made the academics look um vicious um predatory and trite and i thought that if nothing else um, this business of t- taking a phone into um, a tribunal is a way of, it, it was a way of getting away a point around a point of view problem because um the whole story is told from the perspective of this person's Wife and she couldn't have been there So he could bring home the tape and she could listen to it and that way my reader could be at the scene without my violating the Structural rules of the book. So it was It was useful and it's 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 certainly a, a an aspect of the book that Is asking for trouble. I mean, it's a It makes fun of identity politics without apology Uh, I think it is funny, but certainly at this movement's expense um And the whole subplot has to do with the fact that Remington's boss who is half his age was hired to uh, tick a number of uh, diversity boxes, right? Um, She's Uh, second-generation Nigerian, she's female, Uh, the people who hired her were under the impression she was Muslim, although it turns out she's Christian. And she's, you know, she's clearly a diversity hire, and she also doesn't know anything about running a department of transportation in a medium-sized American city, so she's not very good at her job. And this is exactly the kind of character that a white writer like me is not supposed to create. I mean, it breaks every single possible rule. Yeah. At I mean, the same time, it was I was interested to listen to a a, a podcast by Glenn Lowry, um, who's black, uh, talking about the fact that there must be large numbers of white employees seething because they were being supervised by. People hired just to fulfill diversity targets, but were not competent at their jobs. And so it was interesting that a a black commentator made that observation because that's what I know.
0: uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, none of, your characters are beautifully drawn, but uh, none of them ever seem particularly likeable to me in any of your books. You, you don't <laughs> fall in love with any of them. But, oh, but- I
1: like them. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you have strange tastes in people.
0: I, I quite like the character. I'm
1: not interested, I'm not interested in, in perfect people. I don't believe there's such a thing. And I like watching people's foibles play out. I think it's ultimately for their foibles, that we end up loving most people. It's There's something endearing about flaws.
0: Mm. Well, I think that's probably true of, of your protagonists in this book. Um, but I, I think you were a bit mischievous, weren't you, You know, with your naming, your almost sort of Dickensian name, Remington Alabaster. We know immediately that he's white.
1: Of course. Well, my, he's my white um, everyman you know, because there's a regular sub-theme in the book, I'm sure you picked it up, of looking at the state of uh, white American masculinity and um, having a little bit of sympathy, which you're not supposed to have anymore. This is the last group that we ever pity or identify with. Um, They're at the very bottom of the victimhood totem pole. And I I instinctively feel sorry for any group that that I'm instructed not to feel sorry for. That's my I- instinctive perversity. So, and I, th- I think it's really, I think right now it's really hard to be a man. It's especially hard to be a white man and it's especially hard to be an aging white man. I mean, that, that is a deadly combo right now. And so that's one of my main characters is, you know, all of those things. He's 64. He's lost his job ignominiously, um, but that's just old enough not to be able to get another one. Nevertheless, it's also, we're also living in a time that he could easily live 30 more years or more. And that's a long time to not be, not be a fruitful member of society. And, And he's in a pretty, pretty grim circumstance. And it makes sense, therefore, that he would fall prey to the um, endurance sport industry, which we have, you know, for your listeners who haven't are not familiar with the book. That's really what the book is about. He, be, he becomes he
0: becomes what we call a fit, fitness freak, doesn't he? In, in his in his yes, early old days, right. and this is
1: after after having been um, entirely sedentary his whole life. And first, he suddenly wants to run a marathon, and then once he finally gets through that that's not good enough. And he wants to do a triathlon. Um, and, and not just one of the little ones, but he wants more like a, uh, an iron man. I invented my own outfit called metal man, which is M E T T L E. Um, so that I could make uh, any comment I wanted about it without you know, being
0: sued. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, we should say any 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 resemblance between Metal Man and Iron Man is purely coincidental. Purely <laughs> <really> coincidental. <laughs> um, just to go back to the whiteness aspect, though, we we I you know I, I gave that lovely quote from the Guardian, which actually wrote a I thought quite a good review, but uh, entertainingly problematic.
1: I was really surprised. I I got a good review from the Guardian on this book of all all books. I I I was I was astonished. And, and that quote you pulled—that's that
0: going on my paperback. Oh, excellent! Because it, because um, uh, in the book you, you, you have a couple of goes at the word problematic, uh, and at one stage it. it, it, it it means everything, it's a great big giant word for every, everything that's super bad, <laughs> and then a little bit later, what does problematic means? It means the trespasses of white people who are unfathomably evil, meaning white people, period. The unfathomably part goes without saying. I, I, look, I, I, hate, I hate this right now, that, 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 and this is sort of the hardening, isn't it, of identity politics, of intersectionality, that that you can't... Think of people as individuals. You can't dislike somebody because they're an individual. You, 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 you're accused of disliking them for their race or their, or their gender.
1: Exactly, and that comes up in the um, tribunal that I transcribe in the novel because Remington asks his accusers expressly whether it is possible in today's environment to personally dislike anyone from a minority group. You just don't like them. You can't do that anymore. It would immediately be regarded as as racism that it, if if the person you dislike happens to be black, then you're a racist. But you know, that is a racist position. Ironically, it's extraordinarily you racist. You can't deal with you can't deal with people from without who, who have a different race than you um, as as real people, right? Whom you whom you Take a great liking to or or kind of instinctively uh, Find annoying. I mean like a normal person, right? That's the way we all deal with We used to deal with each other all the time like that now that now it's now it's not possible and It is a it is a kind of flattening and reduction of what it means to be a person and what that means is that you encounter somebody from another race and then all they are is a walking representative of that race. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I sure don't want to be a walking representative of, of whiteness. And, and it's certainly not the way I think of myself. And it's not the way I think of, of my husband who happens to be white or, or any of my friends who happen to be white. And I think it's a terrible way of thinking of people. And I am completely flummoxed how we got here why we are hurtling in the wrong direction i mean i you know martin luther king exhorted us to um, get beyond the color of people's skin and and look to their character instead it's one of her his, you know he said it more eloquently than that but that's one of his most oft quoted bits of advice and uh and suddenly we can't we don't do that anymore and I, suddenly we judge each other according to the colour of our skin almost exclusively. And I just, you know, I feel as if we've gone back a 100 years. I just mm. don't get it in the guise of progress.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I, I feel exactly that because, I mean, I guess you and I are roughly of the same generation. We grew up through that civil rights period, uh, me a bit more remotely than you. But we, we came to think about that. We were told at school, you don't, you don't judge somebody according to the colour of their skin. It's what they're like inside. And, and um, it was an instant here, if I could just indulge you for a minute, where, where there was a, a presenter on the ABC uh, who, who reported that he'd had racist comments thrown at him on a bus. And I thought, that's extraordinary. Why would he have racist comments thrown at him? And it was only when I, I looked at him more carefully that I realised he, he, he was of Indian extraction, but it just hadn't occurred to me as an issue up to that point because I think that's the way we were, we were brought up, weren't we, Do, just to literally ignore it.
1: Um, we are being schooled to notice people's heritage uh, first and foremost, and I think one of the things that is, that, that is lost is a kind of productive social ease. You know, I, I have noticed in myself a slight um, how do I put this? An increase in self-consciousness of a a notch up of anxiety in dealing with people who are of a different race or ethnicity from myself that I never, I never, ever felt before, ever. And I hate it. I I suddenly start feeling i better watch myself, you know, turn on the editorial function And check everything as it comes out of my mouth to make sure it doesn't break any rules. This is this keeps people apart This is not good life. It is not good social life. It's an ugly way to relate to people I don't I don't want to be afraid of other people I am accustomed to conducting a robust discourse with everybody And now This anxiety is creeping into everything and I I am I'm sure that I am not alone in this transformation,
0: yeah, well, you're not, and uh, but I sense that you you take it very personally because you were you had uh, you, you are a, described as a controversial figure in Australia because of a speech you gave at the Brisbane Writers Festival. Tell me about that,
1: and and, and on the basis of having said things that shouldn't have been controversial at all,
0: exactly, and that's
1: what's shocking, right? I said basically, if you're going to allow people to write fiction, they have to be able to make people up. And write about something other than themselves if they're going to write about books that you want to read because you're going to get really tired of, of autobiography. Is this, is this, you know, uh, is this scandalous? <laughs> I just, I, I honestly going into that speech, um, I, I was mostly nervous that it would be boring. I, I was worried that it would be, my point was self-evident. And at that time, this whole notion of um, cultural appropriation, had not really arrived in fiction, so I felt as if you know, okay, I was trying to head something off that I could see coming, but it wasn't necessarily going to be a big problem for fiction writers, uh, and uh, maybe I was uh, barking up the wrong tree, and that uh, that this was a fake problem, and and I would be criticized because I was trying to make a mountain out of a molehill, right. Mm uh no (laughs) instead it it turned into some kind of international incident Mm. and you know if you read if you read that speech it is so i mean it's a little playful it's got some jokes in it i think that's part of the problem (laughs) you're not supposed to make jokes about anything to do with this stuff uh but what i was saying should not have been controversial at that time and if you even dial back say five years before all of my original fears would have been realized it's like what's she on about that was boring this isn't a problem um she's being super sensitive uh it's patently obvious that fiction writers have to be able to project themselves in the heads of people who are not like them that's only five years earlier that's the reaction i would have got to this
0: I'm sorry you had such a bad experience here, by the way, because Australia, we knew the characters who were getting getting into you, and we just thought, oh, there they go again. But it's pretty horrible, isn't it, when you get one of these, what they call Twitter storms or um, mm-hmm. social media.
1: Well, I should clarify um, that I did not have a bad time in Australia, and that the, uh, and that, that was the fifth time I've been there, so I'm starting to feel at home. Um, and It it, it is a very small number of people who went for my jugular uh, of a a particular political strike. They do not represent the majority of Australians, and I'm well aware of that. In fact, um, twice in a row now, when I've appeared at the Cheltenham Festival in the UK, there's a little group of women from Australia who have have already their supporters of the festival, so they have access to the green room. And they've organized for me to be given a bottle of wine, to, two appearances in a row, thanking me for coming to Australia, begging me to come back, and imploring that I don't take some of the reactions, shrill reactions on, on the far left as representative of the Australian people. And I took that to heart. I thought that, I thought that was a really nice gesture. And, um, and that's one reason I came back, honestly. It, 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 uh, uh, against the odds and, and having um, the previous uh, previous appearance um, suffered an awful lot of um, character assassination. Uh, I, I, I came back at the end of August last year and did an appearance for um, the, what is it, the Council of Independent Studies. The Centre for, for Independent country. Studies. Centre for Independent Studies, yeah. The problem is they all sound alike. Think tanks, um, mm-hmm. so it's hard to get the names right. But um, and you know that speech went down fine, and uh, and I had a great time. Uh, uh, so it was worth coming back, and, yeah. and I would come back again.
0: Yeah, pleased to hear that. Um, but you know, as, as you as you intimate the these is getting. Worse. And I hope there's an instant in your book towards the end, and I, I hope this is really just fiction. We haven't got to this point yet. That Sarah Nada, who's the one of the chief, probably the chief protagonist in the book, uh, makes a living recording audio books. And towards the end of the book, her work dries up because you're not allowed to mimic anybody. Mimicry becomes improper. I mean, that's incredible, that's, isn't it?
1: That's it. I'll tell you what. Um, I did make that problem up.
0: Thank you. Uh, Glad.
1: <laughs> because it seemed to fit in with the, the kind of objections that people were making lately. And, you know, if you listen to any audio pe- books, people who read audiobooks are usually very good at accents. It's one of the things you're supposed to master if you're going to do that kind of work. And because there's only one reader for the whole book and they have to voice all the different characters. So uh, in uh, the, the Motion of the Body Through Space, uh, my character Serenata does a lot of audiobook work and she's really really good at accents and at a certain point she's told well you know that's mimicry that's a kind of stealing or ridicule and you're not allowed to do that anymore and now the voices of minority characters are going to have to be voiced by minorities um and while I made this problem up it's happening Someone just sent me a New York Post article about uh, a, a woman who reads audiobooks and is now announced. She, she, she's white. She's announced she's that she's not going to do any accents anymore because you know it's cultural appropriation or something. I I, I, I couldn't believe it. I hate being right.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry to hear that, but you're right about the audiobooks. I mean, I, I'm a great fan of Evelyn War's Decline and Fall, and I, I downloaded one audiobook, and they cut all the best bits out when he gets stuck into the Welshman, <laughs> the Welsh. Um, that was just incredibly <laughs> sad. You know, it, it is – you're getting there. And I I love audiobooks, by the way. When I say I read your book, I didn't. I listened to it. <laughs> oh, really? Um, let's pick up on one other big theme in the book, which yeah. – uh, I, I thought was was very well observed, and it is this thing about the baby boomers, right? Although um, well, you, you, you 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 hesitate about describing them as a a single class, but but we are in this world, aren't we? Where nobody um, dies young anymore. Everybody everybody gets to yeah. go old, and the result is that there's a lot of us. You know, a lot of people over over sixty, and you know, on on trends that that group is going to get larger and larger. Um, yeah. And it seems to be tension, enormous amount of tension building up between that group and, you know, people we might loosely call the millennials who sort of resent them being around, resent everything. And I noticed with the COVID-19 thing that millennials were going around describing it as the boomer disease, you know. I I worry about that. Do you sense that? I I saw the elements of that intergenerational tension in your book.
1: Yeah, I, I am worried about it. You know, I grew up with some of that same tension. You'll remember that whole, don't trust anyone under 30. That phrase didn't last very long because all the people who were using it turned 30. <laughs> there was still, you know, there was that expression, the generation gap that originated in the late, late 60s. Um, so it's not as if the intergenerational tension is new, but this has a different texture to it. And it's much more vicious. And the generation that was more about, it involves some mistrust and a recognition that that the generations looked, looked at things differently, had different opinions, were against the war and their parents supported the war, that kind of thing, Vietnam War. Um, but this is more global, both in the sense of all around the Western world and also to do with everything. And it's powered by a terrifying resentment and a desire for vengeance that uh, I don't see any good in it. You know, um, first you've got, apparently we're all the ones responsible for climate change. I'm not quite sure why Millennials who also have flown everywhere don't take any responsibility, but somehow it's all our fault. And uh, and now we now we're being stuck with re, you know inherited racial guilt. That's all our fault too. I don't think it adds up. Um, I mean, I don't know how many slaves you've had.
0: <laughs> well, we had we had no slaves in Australia. That's that's a historical <laughs> fact. But now, of course, the left is saying we did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well facts don't count anymore and that's one of the things that's really forbidding um, but I just I don't see where the resentment gets us except in an ugly place I uh, and you know I, uh, the point on which I'm very sympathetic with younger people is the economic one this whole business of our living till 95 and yet still retiring at 65 is not on and is, you know, it's economically catastrophic. Uh, we're setting up a situation where it is routine to retire for almost as long as you worked mm. and who's going to pay for that. And, and also these are years where, you know, your healthcare costs go through the roof Yeah, and, the extension of, of life expectancy does not necessarily extend healthy life. It generally extends unhealthy life and, and rather miserable life. And In fact, the book that I've just finished writing is all about this subject because I'm very interested in it. And it's looking at, um, at a couple who vow um, back in 1991 when they're 50 and 51 years old that once they reach the age of 80, they're going to kill themselves. That this is this is as old as you should really get, the rest of it is downhill, you're a terrible burden on society the older you get, um, and so to spare both themselves and uh, family and the state, they're going to do the noble thing. And then it takes a look at how realistic that is, and it's a parallel universe book, in, and sorts out all the different possible uh outcomes, whether they do or or they don't do. Because of course, once the they turn uh, the second of them turns 80 into 2020. So that's our jumping off place. It's a very interesting subject. Very, it was a really it was a, a surprisingly fun book to write. Also funny. Not yeah. that you'd expect that. But this is but this is this is where the resentment is correctly placed, although it isn't boomers fault exactly that they're able to live longer. I mean, that's this is the inexorable advance of medicine and, you know, the more we cure cancer. I mean, my father had an absolutely devastating case of lymphoma uh, a few years ago and survived it and now he's 92 and who, who knows how long he, he could make it to 100. Now, that's in a way nice for him. But, you know, this is a classic case of, okay, well, we cured that. And you got to die of something. So we're dealing with a big problem that will also be a problem for millennials or Generation X or whatever, whoever comes after them. This is a this is a problem for the human race. It's not just a generational problem. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, what do you do? Do you just mark time? I think that was out of your book, actually. But the the, but um, the, the, the I think the, the you know the lesson of your book really, if there's a sort of spiritual lesson in there, is you don't fight this, right? Because Remington Alabaster tries to fight it by running, you know, taking up sort of ultra marathons and so forth, uh, and then ends up his health gives way. His wife's health knees let her down, and and and. Uh, you, you, you're only going to be comfortable if you run with, go with the flow, aren't you?
1: Well, from my observations, this uh, obsession with fitness, which seems to only grow more intense, um, it's, it's one of the things that unites the generations, actually. Boomers are absolutely as obsessed with fitness as younger people are. They have slightly different motivations. Now they're both motivated by vanity, but uh, younger people are also trying to uh, to improve their status. You know, it's the whole is Instagram thing. It has to. Do, it's no longer good enough to be skinny or to be uh, handsome or pretty. You also have to be very fit, and you need a six pack, and you have to have you know muscular arms and. I don't need to tell you. It's all all you need to do is look down the street. Um, But older people have the added motivation that they think that as long as they get enough exercise, they're never going to get sick. They're never going to get old and they're never going to die. And that's a lot to put on, you know, sit ups.
0: It it is, isn't it? Back to that generational split. And you're right. In the 60s, it was it was very strong. Um, but it's sort of amusing these days to see Roger Daltrey from The Who um, sort of staggering around the stage singing My Generation with that great line, hope I die before I get old.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's great.
0: He doesn't have that luxury, does he? I mean, but that's the point, I guess. I'm really looking forward to your your next book because, um, you know, we don't choose to be old. My, my father actually said said to me once, he said, Old age, he said, I don't like it. I didn't vote for it. <laughs> but it is. <laughs> we're, we're well, stuck that's with it.
1: the thing. I mean, it is really hard to do well. And um, I think there is such a thing as doing it well. The trouble is that you don't ever know what you're going to have to be good at to be good at it because you never know what's going to get thrown at you. Your body decays, uh, but it doesn't give you an alert necessarily ahead of time what's going to go. And so you never know what new incapacity that you're going to have to accommodate. Um, I, I think old age requires a, an almost inhuman capacity for grace. Um, it requires humility and generosity and the squelching of self-pity um and it probably also uh, is useful to have a sense of humor especially at your own expense
0: <laughs> indeed well you do but can I push you a bit on on the idea of grace and humility um they're um dare I say Christian religious concepts you grew up in a very religious household didn't you yeah
1: I did I mean it was um it was not uh, it, not uh, religious in the sense of evangelical. Um, It it was a very liberal household, uh, democratic in the United States, uh, politically involved, uh, supported uh, environmental causes, opposed the Vietnam War, and my father uh, marched in Selma uh, with Martin Luther King, uh, was heavily involved with the Civil Rights Movement. So it isn't that kind of religiosity that, you know, we we were speaking in tongues around the dinner table. Um, that said, I, uh, Presbyterianism didn't take with me. I mean, I'm still interested in uh, political issues, but uh, have not been a practicing Christian in reality since I was about eight years old. I mean, it's, I just uh, didn't quite buy it. Mm. I think I have, I, I have, this is, you can find this in my ninth novel, um, I, I included this, if this would be late Schreiber. Um, I have some, albeit begrudging appreciation for the values that Christianity, uh, has promoted throughout the generations, and I also appreciate that, uh, Western European culture is heavily based in Christianity, and having some understanding of it is uh, useful for having a better understanding of of, of history and where, in a very uh, general sense, I come from. Um, so, uh, and I and I do note as well that as we have entered a fully secular age, an age in which my resistance to religion is no longer very meaningful. I mean, big deal. So Schreiber doesn't, isn't a Presbyterian. I mean, it's the Presbyterians who are unusual now. Being secular, not having a religious faith per se, is totally ordinary now. In fact, it's more informed than not, and uh, uh, I don't think that's quite the case in the United States yet, but it certainly is in Europe. Mm. And um, so then Therefore, we discover that there is some natural yearning in people in general to to have a faith in something. So that what we're going through right now, these throws over George Floyd's murder, um, the really, you know, there's a distinctively religious fervor behind the Black Lives Matter. Uh, movement and and clearly you know with, with most people they have a need to um, to fill that void with something
0: uh, your sorry door.
1: about the phone you want to get that sorry about that
0: I won't keep you. Right, I apologize I to your listeners. <laughs> no, it gives it an authentic feel. Um, the you know, I mean some you're right. Yeah, I, mean... I still
1: have a landline. <laughs> and then
0: I'll back. Extraordinary. Um, what's one of those? Um, the the because because uh, you know, this isn't an original thought. Lots of people have have, have suggested that this, you know, manifest lo- loss of religious faith um, has given, you know, the next generations, the upcoming generations, are sort of nihilism. They don't have, know what to believe in. So perhaps that's why they latch onto some of these things like Black Lives Matter or, dare I say, uh, climate change, as as almost religious.
1: Yeah, same. Yeah, it has the same texture. Mm,
0: mm. And it comes through. Yeah, and it's
1: about the end. Of, if you know, it's about the end of the world. It's a, it's about Judgment Day. Uh. You know. Um. It it, it has that biblical apop- apocalyptic. Vision. And it's 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 not hard you know it's not hard to construct these belief systems as essentially religious in character and one of the things that distinguishes a religion is its imperviousness to fact and that's what we're seeing in these movements it doesn't matter how much how many times you trot out the statistics of police killings in in the US for the last 10 years and and, and there is no disparity. There is no rage of white cops killing unarmed black civilians. There isn't, but it doesn't, the facts don't matter. The statistics don't matter. And they have been multiply analyzed,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: that doesn't, it doesn't make the slightest dent in the conviction on the street that daily uh, Young black men are being mown down by the hundreds by crazed white racist cops. I mean, that's that's the that's the, mm. the vision that this movement has latched onto. Mm.
0: So you live part of the year in the UK, I think most of your time there, I think, don't you? And, and some time in back in the states. Um, so you're in a position to give. Yeah,
1: yeah. Us- I spend uh, three quarters of the year in London.
0: So, to just give us a flavour of of how life is there, how it is in the states now, with with this sort of irrit, you know, sort of frustration seems to be building up, particularly in the states. Uh, uh, double frustration: one about Donald Trump uh, amongst you know at least half the population, and the other about just being locked down. And it seems to me those two frustrations have come together with the Black Lives Matter movement. How do you see
1: it? Oh, I see the I see the. Uh extraordinary uh, explosion of feeling uh, over the Floyd murder is directly connected to lockdowns. And people have been going nuts. And there's a huge amount of energy stored up that is looking for an outlet. I just think no, no lockdowns and those protests would be a fraction of the size. It is, and it's especially young people who have been losing their minds. And I don't blame them. I mean, it's been horrible, and a lot of them have been stuck with their parents all this time. Even university students sent home had had, had a, a, an independent life going, and then suddenly you're back with mom and dad, and, and it's just it's just awful. And furthermore, um, talk about apocalyptic visions. I I believe that the lockdowns created a An atmosphere, especially in large cities, of the end of the world, of Mad Max, you know? Um, We've never seen New York look like this. The street's completely empty, all the shops boarded up and and shuttered, uh, no life, nothing. It's like a neutron bomb has been dropped. This has never ever happened before um the even even Christmas morning has more activity um uh, than that and uh we it, it, w- this has been such an extraordinary period uh, of uh, such an exceptional period and we have created sense that anything could happen anything could happen um and also the future is in peril and it is economically it's terribly in peril so. There's just this feeling of end of days that has permeated the Western world, which means that all kinds of behavior starts feeling possible. I mean, why not burn everything down? You know, when when you start feeling as if there is no future, then, then you're liberated in the most horrible way. I mean, a, a lot of what controls our behavior is is belief in our own future and our guarding of that future. You you don't want to do a lot of things because maybe you'll get arrested and it would ruin your life. But if you think that your life is already ruined or the world is just going to hell, then you don't control yourself. There's no reason to. Why not steal the tennis shoes mm. if you want them?
0: Yeah, I mean let's do the same. And I, did, I
1: really, I really think the. I mean, I I, I am on record. Um, as opposing these lockdowns from the beginning. I was one of the earliest columnists to come out and say this is a terrible mistake. We have never responded to a contagious illness in this manner by closing entire countries for months on end. And there was a good reason we didn't. That's because it's a terrible idea. It's not even very epidemiologically effective. The curves that uh, the infection has uh, followed in um, lockdown and no, no lockdown countries alike has been almost identical. Uh, and and the only effect, uh, the only really long-lasting effect it has is to have completely destroyed the economy and the, and the balance sheet of government after government. I, I, I'm just horrified. It's, it, it, was, it has really been looking like the entire Western world has committed suicide. And one of the weird things about um, witnessing this suicide is that it's been so peaceful. It's been so quiet. You know, the, the skies are clear. The birds are tweeting. It's been this, it's, it, it is as if, you know, rather than the end of the world, it's like suddenly utopia has arrived and none of us have to work anymore.
0: Mm. It's
1: just great. And, and you can sleep late, and um, in in countries like the UK, the government pays eighty percent of your salary, and you don't have to do anything for that. I mean, it's like it's like we've all died and gone to heaven. And the irony is that this process, uh, this this period of um, of tranquility and 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 quiet, has is 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 actually an act of mind-boggling destruction. You know, I, if, if if you could hear, if the businesses that were going down were buildings instead of organizations, then the sound would be deafening. They would be, there would be, we would be uh, buried under a pile of bricks. And I, but it, it has been a dissonant experience because it's been so pleasant in a place like uh, one of the The weather has been fantastic. (laughs) I I haven't kept up with what it's been like in Australia, but that was the nicest, warmest, sunniest spring the UK has ever had Mm. since records began. So, you know, it just, there was just this atmosphere of calm and happiness. Um, And, 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 and all the time I'm thinking, but, but,
0: But it's all driven by the professional
1: just, This is destroying this country. It is destroying the United Kingdom. Yeah. And, and the, the other irony is that uh, people went, have gone through this uh, period of um, enforced uh, uh, stasis and imagined that the sacrifice of not going to restaurants and bars and, and not going to the theatre, that, that this is the bad part and now when we're coming out the end of lockdown and the bad part is over uh-huh mm. no the bad part hasn't even started yet the bad part starts a when you lose your own job your furlough's over you thought you were going back to work no you've just been fired your company has gone to the wall um and then you know b uh, a host of things that you want to do you can't do anymore. Oh, finally, can go out to eat? No, nope. actually, all the restaurants have gone bust, and the couple that are, are are still operating have social distancing rules that will make sure that within a the month they'll also go bust. You go to get your shoes repaired? No, the shoe repairs place has gone bust. You know, um, your favorite your your, your favorite little uh deli on the corner over you know it's just i think we're going to discover it's going to take a little while for it to come home to us that we have just destroyed the commercial world
0: Mm. and the people that make the decisions over that are the the shiny pants aren't they they're the the white collar professionals
1: (laughs) i haven't heard that expression (laughs) who who
0: sit on their bums and that's how they make a living and they've loved it they live in nice houses of course they don't have you know, screaming kids in a one-bedroom flat. So they're, they're they're enjoying it, but uh, the people that are really paying the price for this are the people that can least afford
1: to. Oh, well, I think that's one of the um, ironies of the Black Lives Matter protests is that give them a few months and they'll really have something to protest about. Um, I am concerned about the way that this uh, coming downturn, if not. Long depression is going to disproportionately uh, punish um, minorities and uh, and anyone who is at the bottom of the um, income ladder. Uh, it's it's people who are in the um, more you know knowledge based sphere that have gone through lockdown unscathed. And by the way, I would be one of them. I didn't have any problems whatsoever, continuing to do my work. I just sit in front of my computer, and it was possible to be far more productive than usual because I wasn't interrupted all the time to do personal appearances. Um, So, you know, I'm a perfect example of somebody who's come out relatively unscathed, but I am very worried about uh, upcoming and altogether justified civil unrest. And this time, it won't necessarily be about a single shooting in Minneapolis. It's it's going to be about mass unemployment.
0: Mm. Well, like I always feel, one should end a podcast on a redemptive note. Um,
1: All right.
0: <laughs> so, look, I mean, there is one. There what, is one. What,
1: what cheerful, what cheerful thing are we going to talk about?
0: Well, I, there's a redemptive note that we can have these conversations because we've discovered this technology and. Uh, you know, it'd be great to see you back in Australia, but uh, in the meantime, I do hope you'll keep in touch. I should say about the technology, incidentally, that this is Australian-made design technology. It's fantastic, and we've discovered Excellent. it. Excellent. So...
1: Well, I agree. I agree that um, this form of communication has been a, a, a merciful outlet during this period, and i found that I listen to a lot of podcasts now myself, and I sometimes think, well, you know... You could read more articles. You could get more words if you didn't have them fed to me. You like that Uh, uh, Why don't you just read some nonfiction books or something, but I think I like the comfort of other people's voices I like the company even in my own home of just having someone else there and listening in on someone else's conversation because I'm starved of it and um, it's one reason I always accept these invitations so to, to do it myself because I just, I am so desperate to talk.
0: Well, that's good to hear because I'm sure you'll get another invitation from us before long. But th- Lionel, thank you so much for joining us and stay safe in New York.
1: <laughs> thank you. And you too. Um, and I hope, we, I hope we have a chance to talk again soon.
0: podcasts like this are part of our mission to fix the deficit of good ideas. You can support the Menzies Research Centre by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org menziesrc.org and press subscribe. I'm Nick Cater and thank you for listening.